Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 38 for April 14th, 2011. The Motion Picture Era, episode number 15. Continues, yes. We're coming to a close. We only have three more Marvel issues left. (sighs) It's something. It's something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we will have completely covered the time between Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek II, a time that I always wanted to learn more about. Right, because it is a big chunk of time. Yep. So today we're going to be covering uh, the comic strip that came out in your local newspapers, uh, story arc number 17, entitled Goodbye, Mr. Spock, and number 18, which is not uh, titled. And then we'll also be doing Marvel number 15. So without any further ado, we'll just jump right into it, if that's all right with you, Ken. That sounds great. Let's do it. All right, so uh, Star Trek The Comic Strip, number 17, entitled Goodbye, Mr. Spock. Uh, This came out May 9th, 1983, to July 2nd, 1983. The the credits go to writer uh, Gary Conway and artist Ernie Colin. And like I said, we're getting really close to the... um, Motion uh, Star Trek Two, which as far as readers go at this time, Star Trek Two was already out for a year, so uh, everybody already knew that Spock was supposed to be dead. But uh, when you start up a new series or a new story arc entitled "Goodbye, Mr. Spock," that might mean something. Let's see if it pans out. So, story starts off with Captain Spock and a random lieutenant commander are in a shuttlecraft investigating a distress buoy in the area of a lost space colony ship that went missing 200 years ago. Uh, The area is in some large rings of a giant gas, a gas giant type planet, so like a large Saturn. Uh, The shuttle is struck by an asteroid and crashes into the planet. Uh, The random crewman dies and Spock is unconscious but alive. Uh, eventually, he is found by some giant chicken-riding locals. Uh, when he awakes, uh, he is in a medieval-looking castle and in the care of a young lady who is quite enamored by the alien. Um, he has amnesia, so he does not remember his name uh, or his Vulcan-type tendencies where he will not have emotion. Uh, so the two of them quickly start a romance. Uh, much to the chagrin of her father, who actually turns out to be the bad guy in this one. And he is not very happy about her relationship with a certain pointy-eared Vulcan. So Kirk and McCoy soon arrive via shuttlecraft to investigate Spock's crash landing. Uh, They suspect that the locals are actually descendants of the colony ship that, uh, like I said a minute ago, was lost 200 years ago. 
when they arrive, the two are greeted by the lady's father, and uh, he invites them to dinner. During dinner, uh, they are drugged, and he brainwashes Kirk to be a black knight and to go and find and challenge Spock to a joust to the death. Um, completely brainwashed, he does so. And Kirk and the amnesiac Spock fight it out. Uh, first they start jousting on the giant chickens, and then they soon make it to the arena floor fighting with uh, various weapons. Uh, during the fight, Spock gets his memories back, and he's able to subdue Kirk without hurting him. The father, enraged that his plan had failed, is just about to finish the job when Scotty beams down and stops him. Spock, with his full Vulcan side uh, in control again, explains uh, that explains the predicament to his uh, brief lover. Uh, the crew then depart and honor the colonists' wishes to remain off the Federation maps. So they're staying secluded, and uh, they will live their life in a medieval chicken-riding existence. <laughs> off the grid. But riding chickens, so it can't be all that bad. No. No, not bad at all. I mean, look at the benefits. Big eggs. Yeah. So, so uh, meh. Thought to say. Meh, 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 meh. Not a great comic strip. I kind of think that, uh, you know, this is 1983. Uh, there was a certain video game out at the around this time called... Joust? Joust. Oh, this must be Joust influence, really? I don't know. In Joust, you ride around on a giant ostrich. You're right. And in this one, they're dueling in giant, on giant chickens. <laughs> you never know. And they're that's jousting. I, that's all I kept thinking about when I was reading this. I'm like... Is this just their joust episode? <laughs> I, I did I did not draw the connection, but now that you mention it, could be. Probably, uh, probably Jerry Conway. He he had spent his fortunes playing joust at Seven Eleven and needed a paycheck, so he just wrote this up. That was a joke. Yes, a bad yes. one. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Uh, well, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't that great a comic strip. So, you know, might be accurate. So uh, they've done this before in the comic strips where you have modern humans reverting to uh, a previous way of life. I mean, last week the Marvel series was more like a Egyptian. Uh, a few months ago we had a, a comic strip that also had a, uh, a society okay. reverting to Egyptian. So I just thought it was odd that they have yet another story where this time they're reverting to Medieval. Medieval times. Yeah. And if you can sit, pick up time period, why go medieval? I don't know. But that's what they did. Yeah. Mm. But but what happened to all the technology that they that the ship had? I mean, did they lose it all? Yes. It's just all gone. Well, we didn't see any, but, you know, maybe there are some vestiges, but it don't look like it. Right. At least from what we've been shown. And and they can obviously read English because uh, when Spock has amnesia and is knocked out, uh, the woman checks his underwear and finds out his name is Spock. <laughs> yes, it's it's very it's very handy that his spacesuit because uh, he and the uh, the lieutenant commander or whatever that ended up uh, dying um, were. We 
were in spacesuits. So it was very handy when you saw when they were found that Spock's sa- spacesuit set across it in big bold letters, Spock. I mean, it, it looked like a football jersey or something. Well, I'm going to have to go back to it because I did not see that. Uh, she says that she read read oh, it on the back of her. You don't see shirt. that? I'm going back. Oh yeah, yeah look right. at it. It's huge. <laughs> uh, on that panel, I was just focusing on the damn chicken. I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> it says Spock. Oh, that's funny. It sure does. Okay. Well, big, when she letters. says later that she read his the back of his garments, I assumed it was like his undershirt or something. <laughs> his underoos. Yeah. Yeah, magic marker. Was it magic marker? <laughs> no. That's funny. Anyways. So, I mean, this story was Spock losing his Vulcan control or whatever and then yes. having relations with uh, the random woman there. I mean, that was done in the uh, the old series yep. with that episode. Several episodes. Yeah. All, all our yesterdays. Where he goes back in time and uh, has so, a me, fling because he's having Ponfar or something. I don't really remember it that well. Oh, was that the K? That was the K woman one. Yeah, right. And right, then they, right. I mean, that story is spun off a couple of novels. Uh, Yesterday's Sun and yeah, whatever the other one is. But I mean, so this has been done before. He sure. goes back in time or whatever, loses memory and has a relationship like a normal person, and then he wakes the- up. Did he lose his memory in all your yesterdays? Uh, no, all, but I think it was like the time travel right. caused him to have Ponfar or something. Yeah, somehow he regressed to the uh, the state his ancestors were in at the same time period or some, yeah, some such thing. Something. Some reason why he would act more human than he normally does. Right. And, of course, there was that other episode. I do not remember the name of it because it wasn't a great one where uh, there are these like uh, like sunflowers or something. That when people get near them, pop, uh, the sunflowers like like control you and make you uh, not want to, you know, make you want to mellow out and you know not achieve much. Oh, so there were marijuana po- flowers. Uh, sort of. <laughs> now that you mention it, yes. Uh, but there, Jill Ireland was the love interest. Nice choice. She's a very choice little lady, but uh, she was the one that Spock. Uh, fell for after he got sprayed with the uh, with the poppies or whatever the hell it was. Uh, and you don't remember what that one was? I don't remember the name, episode? but it was a, it was like a farming community or something on this planet. Everybody's like in uh, like in dungarees and whatever. Huh. And of course, it was up to Kirk in the end. And Spock get Spock. control back. And he had a he had a girlfriend in that one. Jill Ireland. Yeah. Farm I girl. I don't know who Jim Ireland... Jill Ireland. Who's that? Jill Ireland was a fairly popular actress uh, in the 60s. Uh, she was married to David McCallum, who was Ilya Kuryakin in Man from Uncle. And, uh, yeah. She's a cute, cute English lady. At least I think she was English. She had an accent. Hmm. Jill Ireland. Anyway, so there's a couple examples like this, yes. Right. Okay. Anyways, the story's not bad. It's it's a quick story, and uh, 
The artwork, I think, was a great improvement over the previous story arcs. I agree. And the it, story itself, I think, was an improvement over the last few story arcs. So. Yep. Yeah, the previous ones weren't that good. Um, though the artwork was simplistic in, in, in most of the panels, it was higher quality, and I, and I do appreciate it. I, I think some of it I, I liked pretty well. Um, the, although I will say that the shuttle Copernicus... Um, well, all the shuttles look weird. Good, really it's a weird design. Yeah, so the Copernicus is the first shuttle that Spock's in, um, and, and they get hit with the uh, with the asteroid or whatever in in the belt. Right. And um, it's just a weird design. Never saw. It. I I don't remember ever seeing anything like it in the Star Trek uh, Federation uh, stable of no. shuttlecrafts. And, and the one that McCoy and Kirk show up in is pretty odd-looking, too. Well, you, you know, <laughs> I completely agree. Because the original one, uh, the Copernicus, is, is basically basically a long rectangle, and on the top, towards the front, is a is a clear dome. Uh, transparent aluminum or something, I suppose. But it's clear, <laughs> and, it, and, it's a, and it's a two-man job. So there, there's like, it almost looks like, like, like a Corvette <laughs> cockpit or something. Because uh, there's like the two seats, and then there's like instruments everywhere, and then this this clear top on it, and uh, so that's the first one. So that okay, fine, whatever. But then later they show the Kirk and Spock one land, and that thing, uh, all they show is one panel of it, and there's dust all around it because it's landing. That thing almost looks like a square, at least right. from the angle they showed. Yeah. Very odd. Very odd. And, and the first one has all these like little nodes or something poking out of it uh, that I don't know if they're supposed to be engines or some sort of oh it's saucer like, uh, it's dishes like a, or something. It's like a saucer dish. But why would it have like four of them? Well, I see in the shot shot that I'm looking at, I see two of them side by side. They look almost like deflector dishes, and they're hanging off the starboard side. Right. You're looking at the the May 11th or 12th. Uh, yeah, it's, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I would assume that, you know, the ship looks pretty symmetrical, so I'm assuming there's well, two of those same dishes on the other but side. But I, I don't think it is symmetrical. I, uh -huh. I think, I think those, uh, those dishes are only on one side. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Because, because on the next page, uh, or the next, next strip beyond 512, you see another angle at it, and it's not absolutely conclusive. But again, you see the two dishes on the starboard side, and you don't see anything on the port side, but you also don't see the entire ship. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And then the then the ship gets hit on that side. So, so again, you can't see 100%, but yeah. odds are. And well, and, if, and, and, and I look at the the second it, the second day's worth of strips. Yeah. Uh, it it shows it and it, it that side is completely barren. So you're absolutely right. Okay. So if you go to the well, back to the beginning, uh, the second day's worth, right? The second panel where he says location, Mister Sign, right? Whatever his name is, right? So nope, you're right. Very odd looking constructed ships. Exactly, and I'm not sure, but I think the next one uses a similar esque uh, shuttle design, although still a little different. Where spot? Well, we'll 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 get to it in a few minutes, but kind of similar in that it's got multiple engines in the back, rectangular in size, 
uh, small cockpit up front with the uh, with the glass dome. Right. So, yep. Very odd. Very odd. So my last little thing that uh, and I and it's a request that I want you to perform is that uh, you know we've seen Spock and uh, Kirk fight before to the death, <laughs> and uh, we've also it seen a lot. We've also seen Jim Carrey and uh, and <laughs> Matthew Broderick fight in a medieval time type setting. So this kind of takes those two scenarios into one. Oh my God! And I think that someone needs to sing a little bit of theme music for us, Jim Carrey style. I don't know if that's Jim Carrey style. That was brilliant, Ken. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I love that music. That's great. Yeah, that, you know, when Homer Simpson did the Amok Time, you know, battle with the Sherpas, what are those things called again? Where does he do it at? Well, Homer Simpson did it. And then uh, Jim Carrey in that Cable Guy movie, right? Right, yep. So That's the one where yeah. when they're fighting, Jim Carrey's singing the song the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one of the funnier parts of that movie. It's probably like the funniest part of that movie. <laughs> well, Carrey does so many cool uh, like Star Trek kind of things or Shatner type things or whatever. It's It's great. I might have to watch that movie again and, and try to get that sound bite of him singing that song. I, I think that would be a great guest starring <laughs> theme. You want to play rough? Daddy can play rough! That's like when Spock had to fight Kirk on Star Trek. Best friends forced to do battle. <laughs> If we don't battle to the death, they will kill us both. This isn't Star Trek! Goodbye, Jim. Anything else for this one? Um, I thought uh, Kirk was getting a bit personal with Sulu on the uh, May 21st trip. Uh, Kirk's hand is on, on on his shoulders in a rather unnecessary way. I think he was just concerned about Spock's well-being. Yeah, I, and taking it out on Sulu's shoulder, I don't know. Oh, you think he's like if, if, I, if I'm at work, if I'm at work and somebody did that to me, 
<laughs> I don't think I'd be too happy about it. Yeah, that's true. Somebody who comes up behind me as I'm coding or something, grabs my shoulder, not liking it. But that's I... maybe just me. Yeah. Another thing I thought was odd was how insistent McCoy was that Spock is dead. This is after the the, the piece of rubble hits the shuttle. Right. Spock is dead, and that Kirk should accept it. <laughs> and move on. And move on. I mean, he's a doctor, damn it, not an astro pilot. So how does he know so much? Uh, yeah, he writes him off pretty quick. He yeah, He's dead. He's he dead. Spock's dead. Move on. McCoy's probably concerned because he has seen the future, and he does not want to have that Katra in his mind. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay, that's it. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's probably yeah. what it is. He's dead. Yes, yes, he's dead. He's he's too old to 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 go through the training. Let's move on. <laughs> and now he's Yoda. And now he's Yoda. Uh. Yes, too old to begin the training. So, one last comment is that yeah, if they've done this before, you go to a planet to try to find a missing crewman, and the first thing you do is you go and have dinner or drinks with somebody who ends <laughs> up poisoning you. Uh, you think that they would have learned, you know, the last couple of times they've done that exact same thing. Yeah. When I was reading it, especially when he kept on insisting that Kirk has another drink, uh, I was thinking, that stuff's po- that stuff's poisoned or something. Yeah. And, 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 and if this was really medieval times, wouldn't they have like a a, a food tester there? Some surf or something? That's for the king. Oh, okay. That isn't for a guest. Come on. Especially when the king's trying to poison him. Yeah. Oh, well. And another instance where the cavalry shows up at the nick of time with the phasers. Exactly. And uh, Scotty's there. Perfect timing. And at least there wasn't some kind of weak thing where, oh, some kind of beam is uh, stopping the ship from doing anything. No. The ship's fully functional, and they got phasers. So, yep, that was good. Yeah. Now, that last few shots of uh, the girl, I, I, I forgot her name. Uh, what is her name? Uh, anyways. Oh, Diana. Diana. Yeah. You may it makes you really feel sorry for her. She, I was I very. She oh. legitimately loved him, and he just leaves her. And not only that, she really burned some bridges with her father, where she was doing all those things to try to save him, despite the father wanted wanted her to have nothing to do with him. So, so there she is uh, going against her father. You know, maybe to some degree going against her people uh, for the love of Spock, and then he's like, "Oh, sorry, I'm Vulcan now." I'm back to full Vulcan, so uh, I'm leaving. Bye. And he just leaves her there. <laughs> yeah, two panels later. Yeah. Gone. And then and and they did show some some eh, as poignant as a comic strip can get shots of her at the end. It's like, oh right. man. But like the uh, the July second, the the last three panels uh, of the strip. I mean, those would be the last three panels. I mean, those are the only three panels you would get on June July second. And they're just her staring up at the heavens and then turning her back and walking lonely, lonely back to her castle. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a sad three panels, and those would be the, that'd be all you got that whole day. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good day. I hope it wasn't a Monday. <laughs> <Eesh>. yeah. <laughs> 
So, anyways, I just thought it was, you know, she, she was going jumping through a lot of hoops to be with him and to yeah. ditch the chaperones, and he just, eh. Anyways. Irresponsible of him. Anyways. But talk about irresponsible. How did he allow the shuttle to get that get into that kind of situation where they're going to get hit with a boulder. And I know he was saying that thing, ooh, odds are, going by the uh, by the odds of things. And then as soon as he says it, it's like, wham! They get hit by an asteroid. Yeah, a lot of his, like, smart-alecky Vulcan comments uh, in those first couple panels got it's like he always got cut off when he was about to be really snarky. Yeah. Because uh, cause, like, every time something bad was going to happen, He's in the middle of lecturing this this poor lieutenant commander, <laughs> who probably at the who? time was glad to die. Yeah, probably because he w- actually was kind of annoying too. But <laughs> so just as well. Let's go to eighteen. All right, comic strip number eighteen, untitled, uh, July fourth, nineteen eighty three to August thirteenth, nineteen eighty three. So we didn't really mention it, but these two are incredibly short. Uh, Credits are writer Jerry Conway and a new artist, Dick Culpa. So this one is probably maybe the shortest one we've had thus far. So shuttle, um, a shuttle aboard the Enterprise and Dr. McCoy have gone missing. Uh, they find a recording where Dr. McCoy explains his actions. So come to find out in a flashback of sorts... Uh, he was. A, they were investigating a planet that was completely killed off by a plague. While investigating, he cuts himself through his uh, environmental suit. But for whatever reason, he keeps this secret. Uh, back aboard the ship, he starts to show symptoms. So he steals the ship to save the rest of the crew uh, from also contracting the, the disease. So Spock starts picking up the slack and starts investigating the virus to try to find a cure while Kirk is following the uh, trail of the shuttle to try to find McCoy himself. Uh, While Spock is investigating, he realizes that the virus is very similar to a outbreak that was on Vulcan some 200 years back. Uh, He then takes a shuttle to Vulcan to get a rare flower uh, while he's picking the flower, he has to fight off a giant snake in the process. Uh, Spock soon returns back to the Enterprise, and Kirk is deducted that McCoy must be back at the original dead planet so that he couldn't accidentally infect anybody else. Uh, Spock is able to create an antidote using the flower. Uh, they beam down. He distracts McCoy long enough so that Dr. Chapel can inject him with the cure. And then there's a final joke about McCoy thanking Spock for risking his life and Spock refusing that uh, that it was anything personal but only for logical reasons. The end. A little bit of weak levity at the end. Yes. Yeah. And that is one fast shuttle. Uh, exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's like okay, so, so not only do they have these smaller little dinky two-man shuttles, but apparently they must have warp drive. And super-duper warp drive because you would assume the Enterprise is still going out there at warp speed trying to find McCoy. Exactly. And he's able to get the Vulcan, find the flower, fight a snake, come back, create the cure. I mean, he is quick. 
He is very quick. He is Spock. Hear him roar. And here's another one where uh, where Spock takes the lead in a lot of things going on here. Um, I mean, he decided he was going to Vulcan, and he wasn't necessarily – I mean, he, he was going. Yeah, he didn't ask for, for permission. He just said no. he was going. It makes but, sense. And then, and then Kirk was thinking, well, I may need you to help find find McCoy. It's like, ah, I got to go. I got my reasons. Got good ones. I'm taking a shuttle. Later, Dad. <laughs> well, Spock is captain at this point, so you would think that he yeah he is would captain. be able to uh, throw a little bit of weight around. True, and, and they do make a big point of that up at the front. He's he's referred to as Captain Spock, and uh, Kirk still is Admiral Kirk. So, right. So the Enterprise is still not a training vessel as it is at the beginning of Star Trek Two, though. Right. It's on a mission. So, yeah, and and again, um, in this issue, like the last one, although the last one kind of makes sense because it was about Spock and being on the planet, being in love and having, uh, uh, forgetting or losing his memory. Right. Um, but this one, even though it's about McCoy being sick and stuff, this one seems to be mostly about Spock, too. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he he kills a big giant snake. <laughs> Not only that, he's like uh, well, a snake or a worm. I don't know, I don't know what that thing was, but it was huge. Uh, it reminded me of a dune sandworm or something. Yeah. But um, but it comes down. I mean, he shoots it with the phaser, and it comes down apparently on top of him, and he like blasts its, his way out of it, and he's like his head sticking up out of a hole in this thing. I mean, wouldn't you think it'd be kind of wet and goopy or something in there? Exactly. And he's just he's just standing out of it like like he's just coming out of the top of a tank or something. <laughs> like, hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm Spock. Well, yeah, I thought it was kind of a overly uh, overly simplified things, but whatever. Right. Yep. Yep. He should have popped out and looked at the camera and said, "And I thought they smelled bad on the outside." <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Han. Uh, yeah. So the shuttle looks like a 1950s flying car or something. Yeah, it looks weird. Yeah. And I mean, it's really got... small for a shuttle of Star Trek. Exactly. It's very small. It's it's like a car. I mean, it really is kind of like a car. Yeah, anyway. it looks like a like a Jetsons type <clears throat> car. Yep. With a parabolic dish where the rear view mirror should be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, uh, uh, I only have one comment uh, and that was all I wrote down uh, but why did McCoy keep getting gouged in the hands while he was on this thing secret I mean because he's wearing an environmental suit somehow he's looking at somebody or trying to pick somebody up and I mean this thing jabs through his whole hand well this I mean and, and you saw the guy that where he, where he cut himself on for some inexplicable reason this uh, this colonist who's dead um, has like spikes in his in his uh, in his clothes. He's got like like at least three spikes oh in my his God. clothes. Oh, I didn't even see that. Yeah, very okay. odd. Yeah, I did. I was wondering what he cut his hand on, but yeah, now I see it. The seven twelve one. He the guy has spikes on his chest, I, and that's his clothing. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I assume it's not spikes coming through his clothing. Yeah, no, I mean, it looks like a, it's human, but it's, looks a, like a, it's weird. Yeah, like a bandolier or something on his chest. That, it's that it's a weird, a weird fashion statement. Well, you know what? If your whole planet is dying of some crazy disease, you might start wearing big giant giant spikes and just going around and hugging people. <laughs> just for just for kicks. Yeah. Just that, for kicks. It's a weird. It's weird. Um, and he and they did try to explain it in the comic. Why he kept why it he secret? yeah I mean why he at first I mean he could at first he didn't believe he was stupid enough to let himself breach uh, breach containment or whatever they call that stuff right uh, but I mean they weren't good explanations but they did try yeah I mean but, I guess you know. he would I, I don't know I would think that he would be professional enough to realize that hey I need to quarantine myself exactly. right away instead of keeping it secret and being in denial that, oh, I'm Dr. McCoy. I can't get sick. <laughs> I'm the guy that cures people. Although th- this 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 way of explaining how the plague gets uh, brought to the Enterprise is still a lot better than in the uh, Naked Now or whatever that one, Naked Time episode of the original series where they go to that ship that's all frozen uh-huh. and some – some yeoman or ensign or something takes off his helmet so that he can scratch his nose or something. Right. And that's how the disease gets on him. At least he's yeah, we, not that stupid. Was that the one where um, where his hand is near is on a console or something? Yeah. And you could actually see the little animated gloop, goop of something, you know, go up on his hand? Yeah, they is have the, one? the drip of water going in, in reverse so that it, it oh, looks weird yeah. rolling up towards his hand. Right, and then he scratches his nose, and thus <laughs> contaminates himself. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, those old uh, containment uniforms in the old show were a joke. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. the the mesh or whatever it was. Right, it was futuristic. the The first shot of the Enterprise in this comic was was extremely poor. I mean, the whole engineering section looks like the proportions are terrible. But after that first shot of the Enterprise, the Enterprise looks okay. Uh, the drawings of the Enterprise look, in general, okay in this comic strip. So you mean uh, the very the very first panel of the comic, you didn't like the look of it? Yes. Right. Oh, it looked okay to me. Now, the, the there's one later where it's kind of showing a... a a, a shot of its back end from a from a back end point of view, and I think it looks weird. Yeah, but I, I don't know. That first shot didn't bother me too much. So you think the engineering section's just too big, too short? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. If you oh, okay. So let me. Uh, I'm I'm going to it. Oh, that's okay. Where it's going through uh through warp. You're right. Where's that other? Oh, it's the second shot. Yeah. It's the second shot that's screwed up. Yeah, okay, so the first shot's fine. Uh, it actually looks kind of good going through space. And then the second shot, the engineering section is way too short. Right. Um, and, and, and the dish looks weird. Yeah, and then the cells are coming out from underneath the dish. Almost. Yeah. It, it's a but then, shot. And then, and then later in the book, every time they show the Enterprise, it looks okay. Yeah, no, some of them are actually really good shots. Yeah. 
And I think that the artwork in general is pretty good in this. Yeah. Like the actors, the actors look like the actors. They do. Uh, of course, uh, Spock's ninja outfit when he goes to a, back to Vulcan is uh, looks pretty good. I'm not sure why he's got a black outfit on, but he looks pretty good. Well, you never know. It's it's hot there, so you would want to wear a lot of dark colors to really <laughs> absorb that heat. Exactly. <laughs> so you want to jump into Marvel number 15? Yes. The Quality of Mercy. Published date, August 1981. Creative team is Martin Pascoe. Artists, Gil Kane. Colors, Carl Gafford. Letterer is John Morelli. Editor is Al McGroom. And editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. Okay, the cover shows the shadowed figure of the back of a man that looks like the devil. His right hand is raised in a claw-like position. In the background is Ahura, Spock, and McCoy. Ahura is striking a fearful pose. Spock has a phaser pointed in the air that could be brought down at any moment uh, and be fired. McCoy says, that, that can't be Captain Kirk. The devil figure says, oh, but it is Doctor, in a squiggly speech balloon kind of thing. Inside, the title page shows a single full-page hey, panel. Just, just real quick, kid. Sorry. Yes. Yes. So, are you sure that's McCoy and not Igor? Uh, actually, it it was kind of close to uh, I was I was going a little bit towards Nixon, but uh, yes, no Igor, Igor. No, not not your not your um. Oh, my your impersonation. I'm talking about the drawing. Oh, the drawing. Uh, well, the drawing wasn't great. <laughs> he, looked, he he looked like Igor to me, and then when you have like the devil type character in the the foreground, I was like, oh, okay. Anyways, didn't mean to a interrupt. Actually, he looks a little bit like Doc Ock. I mean, like really uh, kind of scrunched you know, down face and, you know, broad nose, and it doesn't look like McCoy. And with the, uh, the, uh, bowl, the bowl haircut. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Doc Ock. But, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely not, not a great rendition of, uh, of McCoy. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you nailed one of my comments right there. The artwork throughout this reminds me of old school Marvel stuff, and, and yeah. they don't really look like the actors, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No problem. Ah, okay. Yes. So the inside title page shows a single full-page panel that contains uh, Spock McCoy, a female crewman, and apparently Kirk in an alien disguise. McCoy does not recognize Kirk's appearance as a disguise and asks the female yeoman, where is Kirk and who is this alien? Kirk playfully asks the doctor, why? Can't you recognize your own captain? On this page... Kirk's log tells us that they are on a top-secret mission with a minimal crew of 200 people. Kirk says he will hold a briefing at 1300 hours where he will give more details, but he wanted them to hear about the mission first and wanted to test his plasti-skin disguise. He says it passed and instructs his yeoman to prepare three more of them for Spock, McCoy, and Uhura. Spock identifies the mask and uniform as being from Mia Placidius. I'm going to get that wrong all the way. Five, uh, and it's a prison guard's outfit. 
McCoy states that part of that part of space is off limits to the Federation, and Kirk says that is why their mission is a secret one. They will use an experimental cloaking device that was installed at Starbase 9 to travel undetected to Mia Placidius 5, where they will infiltrate the prison in the disguises. Infiltration will be helped along by their planned commandeering of an automated shuttlecraft and route to the prison carrying four replacement guards. They will detain the real guards and take their and take their place on a replica of the shuttle that Scotty is working on. They intercept the shuttle, grab it in a tractor beam, and send Spock, Sulu, and two security men to neutralize the guards. They complete their mission successfully, and Sulu gets to show off some kung fu moves. While Scotty finished up the replica, uh, the replica of the automated shuttle, Kirk briefs the strike team, yes, strike team, on why they're going on this dangerous and elaborate mission. The son of Commodore Marquesian, the commander of Starbase 9, is missing. Tack is the son's name, and he is now 18 years old and was involved in some kind of tragedy. Since Marquesian's wife and Tack's mother is uh, Antosian, he is half Antosian. Antosians have mastered molecular metamorphosis, so they can assume any form they wish. They are essentially shapeshifters, to use a more contemporary term. The last record of uh, Tack's whereabouts was on a small shuttlecraft heading for Meoplesidius V. So, because uh, McCason is a big shot, and they want to avoid an interstellar incident, they are risking the entire ship and a slightly reduced crew on a mission to find Tack and return him home. At particular risk will be the Strike Force, who will infiltrate the prison to find Tack. Scotty informs Kirk that due to the strain the cloaking device puts on the impulse engines, they can keep the cloak up for six hours after they have entered orbit. So that is the strike team's time frame to accomplish the mission. Later, on Scotty's duplicate Marcasian shuttle, Spock reports he has learned the Marcasian language and all prison information needed for, for the mission from tapes he found on the real Marcasian uh, shuttle. Spock continues to impress by transferring his newly gained knowledge to all the strike team members by way of the Vulcan mind fusion. As usual, Spock is a real handy guy to have around. The strike team lands at the west entrance to the prison, where they are greeted by Deputy Supervisor Cole, who takes them to Supervisor Veerman's extravagant office. Veerman is a sadistic, uh, decadent creep who is preoccupied with the latest execution when they enter his office. Veerman shares the joy by showing the new guards the execution. Ohura reacts squeamishly to the brutal execution on the view screen. So Veerman takes them out to view an execution firsthand to kind of break them in. He explains how Mia Placidius V has, was selected as the prison-slash-execution planet due to its volcanic activity and its lava pools that make for, make for a handy way of disposing of executed prisoner parts.
As the, la- as the latest victim sinks into a fire pit in agony, the supervisor inf- is informed that prisoner 512 has escaped. Kirk volunteers to go after 512. Veerman agrees, and they are off in a flying car. Veerman tells Deputy Supervisor Cole to follow them, since he does not trust them. Later, the strike team finds the body of prisoner 512, dead of exposure to an extremely corrosive substance. Spock is distracted by something and heads over a hill when the rest of the team is confronted by a Neoplacidian desert devil. The big blue monster actually vomits stomach acid at Kirk. Yuck! Kirk dodges the vomit, but but its corrosive properties brings rocks down from the hill located behind Kirk and partially buries him. McCoy tries to blast the creature, but misses. Spock comes back over the hill and takes a crack at it. He misses the surprisingly agile creature and instead hits a deposit of magnesium that sends up a blinding white light. Everyone is temporarily blinded except for Kirk, who then frees himself from the landslide and whacks the devil into unconsciousness. McCoy realizes Spock is not Spock because Spock would not have been blinded by the flash due to his Vulcan internal eyelid. Also, the phaser used was set to disrupt, not stun, and Kirk ordered stun setting only. Kirk tackles the imposter and figures out it's actually Tack who has shape-shifted to look like Spock. Kirk asks why he ran away from home, so Tack tells his terrible story. He was in love with a girl named Lorena. There was an accident at Starbase 9. He and Lorena were in a ground car when it lost control and skidded off the road into an irrigation canal. She died. He survived. He admits he was stoned on Corazine, which caused the accident. Just say no, Tack. Just say no. His guilt drove him to want to commit suicide. Suddenly, he uses his transmute power and disappears. While the trio try to scan for the boy using a tricorder, Deputy Supervisor Cole confronts them with his gun and questions. He says they are not Mia Placidians, so who the heck are they? Just then, Spock sneaks up on him and neck pinches him. They put Cole down the same pit dug to catch desert devils that Tack put Spock in. When he, was, when he was able to distract Spock away from the others. It took Spock a while to climb out, so it should keep Cole on ice for a while, too. The strike team gets back into the hover car and heads to the prison to find Tack before he has himself killed. Meanwhile, in Supervisor Vierman's office, Prisoner 512, apparently raised from the dead, is hauled before the supervisor. Vierman orders an immediate execution via the agony chair on execution platform 32. Kirk and the others witness 512 being taken to the chair and quickly deduce Tack has shape-shifted to look like 512 to get himself killed. They stun the two guards with their phasers. When they rush down to release Tack from his bonds, they are set upon by Veerman and some guards that come up behind them. They are forced to drop their phasers. Veerman orders his guards to beat their true identities out of them. 
the Federation spies spring into action and take down the two guards. Veerman still has a gun and prepares to blast them with it when he is unexpectedly shot from behind by Deputy Supervisor Cole. Cole says he now is the prisoner's or the prison's supervisor, and because Kirk and company did not kill him in the desert, he will not kill them now. He does go on to say he never agreed with the, the, the sadistic, brutal way Veerman ran the prison, and he will run things differently from now on. Kirk makes an eloquent point against capital punishment that Cole agrees with, but he says he must take, an, he must take all outworlders into custody as per their law. Just then, the Enterprise beams the strike team up uh, along with Tack. They take off at warp, warp 12, warp 12, for home. Later, McCoy explains that though Tack has been saved from himself for now, his guilt was compounded by the disgusting death by acid vomit that Prisoner 512 uh, went through. Uh, and, of course, she was put in that position because... Tack had switched places with her. Even with therapy, he may not overcome that, these traumas. No pat ending for Tack, unfortunately. At least the seed of a more humane criminal justice system may have been planted on Mia Placidius V. The end. Blah, 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 blah. I don't think I said that planet's, planet's name right once. Yeah, but... I was all over the map with it. I, I don't even know how you would pronounce it. <laughs> I'm just glad that that wasn't my one to synopsize. <laughs> Mia Placidus. Huh, that might have been it. Okay, so this issue left me cold. I'll say it right now. I mean, it wasn't a horrible issue, but it just left me cold. I just wasn't, you know, wasn't doing it for me. You weren't feeling it? I wasn't feeling it. Uh, I will agree. Uh, I... <laughs> I, I think that the quality of these stories have fallen quite a bit over the last couple issues. Mm, unfortunately. So I don't know I if mean, they knew they were about to get canceled, and so they're just kind of phoning it in, or or what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Or, or new people are getting involved in the story writing. I don't know. But um, he's written things before, though, right? Uh, yeah, this, this group has been... Involved before, yeah. Martin Martin Pasco. He's he's read, he's written a fair number of them. Of course, most of the ones more recent, which weren't exceptional, right? But, but. um, yeah. I, I, one thing that really left me cold was they go on this really dangerous mission. I mean, they seem to be putting the entire uh, the entire ship and crew at risk, uh, and certainly the strike team, the strike team, at risk, all for this kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, of course, his father's important and stuff, and there could be an international incident. It's like, I think it's a bigger incident if you find the Enterprise there, you know, a warship uh, in your backyard when you've made it very clear to the to the galaxy or the quadrant anyway that, uh, that you know, you don't want anything to do with the outside, uh, the, the, the greater uh, galactic world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just didn't seem to make a lot of sense for me. No, you're right. It, it does not. A and... And the 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 plot is so elaborate and overly complicated with, you know, we have to create a fake ship that looks just like the old ship, but we can't let the <laughs> crew that we're uh, replacing know that they've been replaced. And wow. 
Yeah, and 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 what was the reason they couldn't just take the real ship? I mean, they actually, uh, yeah, they explained. It, <laughs> I know they talked about that, but it just didn't seem to like it was a very good reason. Oh no, it is. It's a it's a horrible reason. <laughs> <laughs> it was something about how they were uh, the crew was so xenophobic that uh, they would rather kill themselves than to let the ship get captured, which doesn't really make sense because if you just run in there and stun them, throw them in the brig, and then you take the ship. I didn't get it. Yeah, and then of course Spock has to use his endless bag of mental tricks to, uh, you know, do the voodoo on their memory and whatever. Yeah. Now, what was the first one he did? Uh, he does the nerve pinch, and then he's able to do a mind touch that erases their memory. Right. And then later, he does the um, the Vulcan mind fusion. Mind fusion. That's it. To transfer all necessary knowledge to the other three human crew members that couldn't possibly learn a whole language in the amount of time that Spock and a super brain can. Well, and, and you know, we're talking about the language. Uh, I mean, they have universal communicators at this time in Star Trek. Yeah. And they even mention it while they're, you know, they're trying to take over the small ship with the four uh, original guards. And Spock says, without our universal translator mechanisms, uh, we cannot understand what they're saying. And I'm like, well, you're attacking a alien ship. Why would you leave the communicators on the Enterprise, the, <laughs> the universal yeah. translators? Exactly. Right. It, it didn't make sense. Yep. And speaking of translators, that would be like the only reason you would – Take Uhura? I mean, why did Uhura go? I mean, what, was the fourth guard a female? And they had to have another female. I didn't see that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was and she didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. You know, they didn't let her say anything or do much of anything. I, I'll be honest. When I read through this the first time, um, I didn't catch that Uhura was going with them. Yeah. And so when they're on the planet and there's four of them, I was like, wait a minute, who's the fourth one? And I'll, I was like, ah, I'll just wait until she, uh, whoever this person is, talks, and and I'll know who it is. And then it's like, one talks about Jim, one talks about Bones, one talks about Spock. And I'm like, uh, okay, who's this fourth person? Who's the fourth person? So I had to go back and reread that, that, that line about Ahura even going. So Yeah. No idea why she's there. Right. Eye candy. <laughs> well, she's got the outfit on, so yeah, how can you really... I don't, she doesn't look very attractive. I mean, you can tell she has breasts, but, you know... You can't even tell that most of the time. I, I didn't even catch that it was a woman for a while. <laughs> oh well, and some of those some of those things they seem to go out of their way to to draw breasts on her. Right. But yeah, and other ones they don't. So yeah. um, I, I thought it was funny that Tack uh, when he's pretending to be Spock. So yeah. he he's pretending to be Spock. He's <clears throat> pretending to be this alien. Right. And yet they're able to know that oh that guy doesn't quite act or look like Spock and you're like how would you know he he has this plastoid uh, what'd they call it plastifilm mask on or something like that something like that but well they they explained I mean actually they went into a lot of detail about how they know yeah I know but I'm just saying it's just funny that I don't know I just thought of fun, I thought it was funny about somebody pretending to be somebody who was pretending to be somebody <laughs> exactly but if you're a shapeshifter 
you could do I that. guess you do that kind of thing. Unless and that's another thing. Oh, oh go ahead. ahead. No. Okay. That's another thing. This shapeshifter has the ability to not only extend his shapeshifting abilities to a gun that he's holding, but apparently he was able to, and they said this uh, in the book, although, you know, couldn't include everything in the synopsis. Um, he was able to extend his shape-shifting powers to the shuttle that he commandeered. I mean, the whole shuttle. That's how he was able to escape detection and get to uh, get to the prison, uh, prison in the first place. So it's like, wow. Well, that, that beats Odo. I mean, Odo can't do that. Mm-mm. Odo can't even do faces, remember? Uh... Yes, he can do other highly detailed things um, that in some cases are more complex than the human face. But yeah, he can't do a human face. (laughs) Right. I mean, he can turn turn into a freaking glass of water, but he can't do a human face. Or a bird, detailed enough that the bird can actually take flight, and yet he can't make a human face. Exactly. Crazy, crazy Odo. It is wacky. He can become a backpack. (laughs) But he can't become a human face. Okay. So, anyways, I thought it was funny, you know, when uh, when Tax having his, you know, after school special moment. (laughs) The whole time he's telling this story, Spock's missing. They don't know where the hell he is. And yet they're, oh, Tack, it's okay. Tell us your story. Go on, son. Tell me. Why did you leave home? <laughs> and then, you know, way later, Spock shows up and was like, hey, guys, what'd I miss? <laughs> <laughs> and then to find out he's been stuck in a hole somewhere all this time, and you're just like... <laughs> ah, he can take care of himself. He'll get him. He'll get out. a very good captain. <laughs> oh. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the design of these aliens. So they're basically they look like uh, the DC Comics alien, uh, DC comic character called the Demon. No. So they're right. they're yellow with a little bit of red and and horns and everything, except they have a mohawk. They all have mohawks, uh, red yeah. mohawks. Except in the devil character we're exposed to on the cover of the issue. Uh, yeah, and that one looks spot on like the demon from DC Comics. Um, hmm. and, and that's kind of why I was saying a lot of this reminded me of like old school Marvel because there was an artist named um, uh, Jack Kirby who created the demon for DC, but he also created a lot of stuff for Marvel. And right. Very uh, famous. Yeah, a lot of these character designs, especially McCoy on the cover – it actually looks like the man Jack Kirby, so I kind of wondered if oh. they were kind of drawing this kind of as an homage to Jack Kirby, and hmm. uh, I don't know for sure if that's the case. Anyways, I, I just thought that was funny um, as far as the art style, because it is quite a bit different than what we've been seeing here in the uh, Marvel series up till now. Right. Another, and I mentioned this many times before in other ones, but Warp Factor 12? Okay. So, again, Warp Factor, Warp Factor 12 seems really fast to me. And so I went ahead and looked it up. Oh, good. And although there are, like, paragraphs talking about 
um, the Enterprise engines and warp factor and that kind of stuff. I'm just going to read just a few quick sentences. Um, plots involving the Enterprise traveling beyond warp, warp 10 were once in the original series. Such as at one point it flew four, warp 14.1 in the episode That Which Survives. And for Next Generation, it was decided that these would no longer be featured. A new warp scale was drawn up with a warp factor 10 set as an unattainable maximum. This is described in some technical manuals as Eugene's limit in homage to the creator-producer Gene Roddenberry. Normal maximum warp in the original series was warp 8. The warp factors above 10 in the original series, such as the one above, were... Slower than warp 10 on the new scale. Well, whatever. I mean, the main point, it goes on and on. But the main point is, the typical maximum was 8 in the original series. Now, are they saying that warp 8 was the the next generation warp scale? Warp 8 was the fastest that that, that those ships would have been able to go? Well, okay. It says right here, the normal maximum warp in the original series was warp 8. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it went up to as high as fourteen point one in that one episode. But that w- that was uh, atypical. Okay. But uh, in the in a lot of these comics, it's not unusual for them to be kind of casually going ridiculously high warp factors. So, right. You no, know, it just kind of bugs me. Yeah, well, I'm glad you looked that up because I was I I knew that the next generation started the the you know the new warp scale yeah but i i always assumed that there was more references to higher than warp 10 in the original show but there was only well one. That's funny. well it sounds uh, one went as high as, well yeah it does say only one and it's so it's, it's a whopper 14.1 14.1 hmm yeah. uh yeah. now there was an episode of Next Generation, where they talk about going warp 13. In Next Gen? Yeah. The, uh, uh, where no man yes. has gone before. Uh, all good things. That that kind of fake future. Exactly. Exactly. So, And it says this towards the end. I didn't read it. Oh, but okay. In, in the alternative future depicted in All Good Things, the final episode, Federation starships travel at warp 13. Hmm. Anyway, um, it also says something about the Intrepid-class starship in Voyager has a maximum sustainable cruising velocity of warp 9.975. Damn, that's pretty fast. And the Enterprise-E can even go can go even faster at warp 9.985. So Whatever. there's not a lot of room for improvement there. Well, it they do say the unattainable maximum limit of 10... And they also talk about, and I, I don't want this to drone out too much about this, but just one more thing I just want to mention. They talked about um, okay, so so warp ten on the new scale, which reaches an asymptote at warp ten representing infinite velocity in accordance with the limit imposed by the producers of... Yeah, okay, so in the Star Trek Voyager episode, Threshold, 
concurred with this. The characters ruled that reaching the velocity of warp factor 10 was impossible. In spite of this, they went on to achieve the velocity experiencing a peculiar side effect. They underwent a, a reversible process of hyper-evolution culminating in their transformation into anthropomorphic newts. Right, and had babies. Yeah. In this episode, Tom Barris explains that while traveling at Warp 10, he was simultaneously present in every part of the universe. Wow. that That's deep. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on, but that that that's that's some rich 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 information there. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I was kind of wondering. Uh, this here's another thing that that makes no sense. Uh, when they went into the prison ship or the guard ship uh, to take down the uh, the the replacement guards, Spock and Sulu end up going in there, and they talk about two more security guys going in, but I don't remember seeing any security guys. Um, so why send those two in there? I mean, why not check off? Why not a whole security detail? I mean, why those two guys? I just didn't make any sense to me. And where is Chekhov? Uh, he's in it every once in a while. Well, I know, but if you're going to have a security <laughs> thing, where you're going to go into... I mean, this seems like a security detail yeah, kind of I thing. Yeah, I agree. Not, not let's put the uh, the guy that drives the ship and, uh, and you know, our, our first, our second in command in, in, in this little... This little SWAT raid. Yeah, he did say that they're on such a high risk, high profile movie um, mission that they're on a skeleton crew. So it might be that everybody else is not on the ship. Well, they're supposed to have two people, two hundred people on there. So what's the normal complement? More like two thirty-five, two fifty. I thought they had four hundred and something. Four hundred? No, not on the old Enterprise. I thought it was two hundred something. Really, four hundred? That's what really. I, that's what I thought. No. Well, that's a big difference in in crew then, but still, two hundred people—that's pretty high. Well, I mean, but you can still fly the Enterprise without any limitations with only seven people. <laughs> if you have Scotty's uh, automation in place, which won't last long enough. <laughs> long enough to destruct the Enterprise and and only have to strand seven people on Genesis Planet. There you go. That's right, because you know they, 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 they need to uh, get a new ship. Yeah. Okay. Did that bother you when you were watching it? Because it it really bothers me that that they just tried to offhandedly say that Scotty can do magic and they control <laughs> the whole ship with seven people. Yeah. Yeah. That that was kind of weird. I mean, why do you have such a big crew then? Right, uh, and you'd think that that for a time you would be able to use automation. I mean, what? I mean, do they have people like mechanically turning cranks or something, you know, to keep it flying straight or something? I, I don't know. I, I never did quite get that. Yeah. I mean, sure, you need maintenance stuff going on, but you know, for a time you think you'd be able to to run it with a computer and some other stuff. Um, my last comment on this comic is the very last shot of the Enterprise. <laughs> at the end, the final panel, is the oddest picture of the Enterprise I think I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, it's basically a Stewie Griffin Enterprise. The uh, the, the nacelles are short and little, and the, the engineering section is pretty small, too, and it's got this big, huge, fat saucer <laughs> section. It looks like Jiffy Pop. Jiffy Pop. Yes, it looks like Jiffy Pop. 
It's the oddest little little shot, uh, little drawing of the Enterprise I think I've ever seen. It's very strange. I, I think they it's such a narrow panel there. I think they might have had a bigger shot of it, but they had to like shrink something so it could fit in. But why not why not shrink down the, the, the saucer section? I don't get it. Yeah, the, the nacelles and the engineering section are proportionate to each other. But the saucer section is huge. It, it is. It is. Very odd. Yeah, that's funny. Um, that is really funny. Yep. Okay. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> so uh, we only got two more, two more episodes. So tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, but next week we will review uh, Marvel number sixteen and seventeen and strip number nineteen. And then the week after that will be the final issue of Untold Voyages, the final Marvel issue, and the final comic strip. Ah, times are changing. Coming to the end of an era. All right, so elsewhere in Star Trek land, uh, August of 1981, uh, the only thing going on was uh, the Star Trek comic book that we just reviewed. Ah. Ah. A lean period for us, truckers. Well, as far as what we get, I mean, as far as what was being made at the time, I'm sure August of 1981, they were uh, working on Star Trek II. Yeah. Which bore fine fruit. It did indeed. It did indeed. Indeed. All right, so next week we get two Marvels and one comic strip. So we'll see if it... uh, is as good as this episode. (laughs) Hopefully better. Okay. All right. So until then, take care, everybody. Okay. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.